0: Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada, talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. Hello, this episode of Victor's Children is an interview with me by André Goulet on the podcast Harbinger Society Presents about Future on Fire and this podcast, Victor's Children. I'd also like to let listeners know that on April 15th, 2023 at 1pm Eastern Time, the online magazine Midnight Sun and Haymarket Books are presenting an online discussion, Fighting Capitalism's Ecological Death Cult featuring Sabrina Fernandez, who's a Brazilian eco-socialist and the founder of the Teze YouTube channel, where she reaches thousands of people. Uh, she was a guest on episode 22 of Victor's Children in October 2022 on eco-socialism and the ecological crisis. Uh, and also Richard Seymour, the British socialist writer, author of the Disenchanted Earth, The Twittering Machine, and other books. And me, David Camfield. The moderator will be Daniel Sarah Karasik, the managing editor of Midnight Sun. Register for this event uh, by going to haymarketbooks.org and clicking under the events tab there. I also just mentioned that uh, some people wonder why this podcast is called Victor's Children, and I'll just encourage you to check out episode number one back from February 2021, which is about Victor Serge, after whom this podcast is named. Also, if you have any suggestions for topics for episodes or guests, always feel free to drop me an email at victorschildren at gmail.com. Okay, so this month's uh, episode is an interview with me by Andre Goulet.
1: Winnipeg activist and academic David Camfield is the author of Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change, We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, and Canadian Labour in Crisis, Reinventing the Workers' Movement, all from Fernwood Publishing, He also teaches labor studies and sociology at the University of Manitoba, and he's the host of Victor's Children, a podcast exploring socialism from below on the Harbinger Media Network. David, welcome to Harbinger Society Presents. Thanks for
0: having me on, Andre.
1: Tell us about Future on Fire. What is the book about?
0: Future on Fire is a short book that really starts uh, with the key question of uh, if we want climate justice, how could we get it? So it's not a book that talks a lot about the changes that are needed because lots of people have written about that. It says a little bit about that. But the real question is, you know, if we know what we need to do to address the urgent problem of climate change, um, how could we actually make the changes necessary? Mm-hmm. And so it uh, looks at that and then also it uh, looks at some of the questions that kind of come out of that, that are important, I think, and, you know, tries to do it in, Few, relatively few pages and in a way that's going to be as accessible as possible to people.
1: It's so short, it's basically like a novella. It's only 76 pages long. And, and so I'm wondering, what are the origins of the book?
0: Well, what's funny is, in fact, when you said novella, uh, that when I was working on it, I thought, what's the nonfiction word for novella? There isn't actually in English something that quite fits, but that's exactly what I tried to do with it. So it came out of uh, back in 2019, In the summer of 2019, when it became really clear that there was a lot of momentum for the climate strike that took place at the end of September of 2019, which seems a very long time ago, pre-pandemic, it became very clear that this was not just going to be another demonstration like previous demonstrations. There was a lot of momentum. There were a lot of people getting involved in organizing for that uh, International Day of Action. And It was really inspiring to be participating in some of that work here in in Winnipeg where I live, but it was also really clear to me that a lot of people were coming into this with uh, really no um, background in terms of thinking about strategy and not a lot of analysis about uh, the causes of the problems. Uh, So I thought I might be able to contribute something to the movement um, by using my time to, to write something, which would try to give people some, uh, tools for thinking about those those kinds of questions that so that 's where it uh, it came out of originally i 'd been thinking about some of this stuff before, and I had the opportunity to to teach uh, a course at University of Manitoba, which uh, was engaging with certain related issues but uh, then the movement arose, and there were tons of really young people involved and uh, I just thought this was something that I could contribute.
1: In this conversation, we'll be outlining each chapter of the book, and there's been so much going on in terms of movements since uh, 2019, and we've gotten distracted a lot during the pandemic with the occupation of Ottawa, uh, January 6th in the United States. But like in the autumn of 2019, half a million people took the streets of Montreal uh, protesting for climate justice. This is a movement that's growing and this book is so accessible and clearly written, not academic at all. It's it's got a lot of brevity, which is great. So let's begin by looking at chapter one, the path we're on. And it's probably obvious to the show's audience, but in a few words, at the beginning of the book, what path do you argue that we are on?
0: We are on a path towards you know heating above pre-industrial average temperatures of something like two point seven degrees by the year twenty one hundred. Um, I mean. And that's part of a broader ecological crisis with all sorts of different dimensions. Uh, And there's a, you know, a tremendous human cost and tremendous uh, damage to, to, uh, you know, other parts of the, uh, of nature. Um, So that's a a really disastrous path to be on. Just to remind everybody, of course, is that, you know, governments have agreed to 1.5 degrees as the, you know, the target we should be working towards and certainly no more than two, but, you know, the climate action tracker actually says it's a, you know, go-to research organization for this thing um, that were something like, well, between 2.2 and 3.4 degrees, but 2.7 is in the middle of that. So way, way higher um, than where we need to be in terms of, uh, of global heating and climate change. One other thing that chapter one says, which I think is worth underlining is that the impact on people has everything to do with the social arrangements that we're living in. So there's a big difference between living in, you know, a much hotter, uh, situation if you have a society that's actually been organized in a just way to adapt to that uh, versus one that has had no ability to do that so uh, one of the things that also just points out is that we can't you know if we think about the consequences for people it's not enough to simply know the climate science we also have to understand how it affects society and how it plays out politically.
1: In chapter two, will capitalists save us? What about governments? You talk about the potential barriers for if the left were actually elected and and what it would look like to confront the institutionalized liberalism in political parties, the capitalist forces within society. And you point to the interesting and well worth watching Norwegian Netflix drama Occupied, where progressives take power in a fictional Norway, and we see what happens when they meet the reality of these institutions. So, capitalists won't save us; governments won't save us. Is that right?
0: Well, that's that's right. It's or at least it's the chapter argues that certainly looking to so-called enlightened or green capitalists to deliver climate justice is is ridiculous, um, and that the parties of the status quo, you know, the main parties aren't going to deliver this. Uh, you know, then we could imagine a situation where you might have you know the ndp taken over by green left forces and then elected into office uh, and that would not be a bad thing but the the chapter does try to explain in a clear way what the obstacles to such a government implementing its climate justice agenda would actually be uh, and why it's a mistake to simply think that if you elect a party with the right policies into office, that that's going to be the solution. I wish it was that easy.
1: In chapter three, you talk about how mass movements are our only hope. And I liked how you explored the inspiring and, and uh pretty successful in terms of motivating hope events like the Dakota Pipeline protests, the Extinction Rebellion tactics, like souping Great Master paintings, and people can argue about whether it's stupid or not, but like it definitely gets our attention. So I'd argue that these protesters um, their children, they must feel so bummed out about the the world that's on fire right now. So give them a break. Um, you also importantly talk about the gilets jaunes movement in France in 2018 and 2019. And of course, Black Lives Matter. Uh, gilets jaunes, though, is really interesting. It, it was about the people were protesting about the rise in gasoline prices um, during Macron's first term in office. And what could have ended up being a really reactionary movement um actually ended up combining progressive values with economic issues uh yes so like with mass movements that's the hope isn't it but tell us more about that
0: absolutely and so i was picking up um the on, on the line that naomi klein um wrote years ago about how mass social movements only mass social movements can save us now and i've just tried to give people a sense of well mass social movements in the past because lots of us who haven't experienced that um you know won't know what it feels like and it's hard to imagine then if we don't you know know some of that history but i do think that because of the barriers that face elected governments if we you know even the ones you know, the ones that would actually want to do the right thing in terms of climate justice um then you know that sh- we need to shift beyond just electing certain kinds of parties into office and think about what forces in society um could actually force governments to do what's needed. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the, you know, there's a focus on social movements in that chapter. Just to pick up on the example you gave of the the gilets jaunes in in France, I think it's is a really um, important example, precisely because it was really generated of parts of French society that people didn't see as likely to throw up a, a movement. It wasn't at the beginning you know, made up of the kinds of people who had been part of other anti-austerity fights in, in France, for the most part, in terms of being more outside of Paris, smaller centers, rural areas. And uh, and yeah, as you said, it could have easily been channeled to the right. Um, but for a number of reasons, including the active participation of of people on the left in that movement, you know, it ended up starting around this issue of uh, attacks on, on diesel becoming a, a broader movement against social injustice. And you know, with the slogan, fin du monde, fin du mois, même combat, um, you know, which is end of the world, in other words, climate change, end of the month, in other words, poverty, same struggle. That uh, is a kind of a climate justice slogan. And so for all its imperfections, that showed us, I think, the kind of movement that we might see more of in the future coming out of unexpected places in responses to things that are affecting people in their everyday lives in terms of the cost of living potentially being drawn away by the right, but also, you know, unlike something like the convoy in Canada, you know, which was clearly simply a reactionary move. Mm -hmm. um, You know, it had, it was, what happened in France was, was capable of moving in a different direction.
1: And I think in chapter four, you continue to explore that in even a ravaged planet is worth fighting for. Uh, Unpack that a little bit. Why is a ravaged planet something that is still worth fighting for? Why shouldn't we give in to, to doomerism?
0: Well, that chapter is trying to look at a question that a lot of people shy away from i think which is um, what happens if emissions uh rise greenhouse gas emissions that is rise in a way that lock us into temperature increases of you know more than two degrees um, which is horrifying but we need to think about this for, for a couple of reasons both because you know if if people we obviously need to fight to limit emissions as much as possible in a just way, there's no doubt about that. But uh, if people think that literally the world will end, or it's not worth living, if we don't achieve the the necessary reductions, um, then I think that's a real problem, both because of what, how people will suffer in terms of mental distress, um, if we end up in that kind of scenario where climate scientists tell us this. Uh, And because also people um, will you know, need to be able to continue the fight, even if we find ourselves in that situation. And I think we need to avoid the danger that as more emissions continue to be pumped out and as the trajectory of of heating gets worse, there will be a greater appeal of politics which say we need to slash emissions, we need to also adapt, but without any consideration of social justice. So there's the danger of right-wing climate politics. Um, having an appeal to people who are just feeling desperate about the future. And that could be disastrous, you know, really reactionary authoritarian right-wing um, politics of emissions reduction uh, or, you know, there other possibilities around things like um, solar geoengineering, uh, which, you know, would be very, very worrying. And so trying to help us think about some of these things, instead of thinking it's, you know, all or nothing mm-hmm. we either limit we either limit emissions or it 's the end of the world well we that 's not helpful because we may end up in a situation where we 're heading towards you know really even more frightening uh, temperature increases, and we have to think about how we continue to struggle in those circumstances.
1: My reaction to that chapter was just to kind of check my own doomerism and to remind myself that to fight and to care in the face of what sometimes seems like a slow motion apocalypse continues to be really important and chapter 5 explores eco socialism which is a buzzy term but Dimitri lascaris ran on that when he came just 2000 votes shy of beating Annamie paul for the leadership of the green party of canada and we see it in a lot of other political movements around the world so tell us uh, how did you explore eco socialism in future on fire
0: well it's the shortest uh, part of the book and it basically argues that ultimately you know we we need to fight for emergency climate justice reforms within capitalist society because that's where we find ourselves but that ultimately to address the ecological crisis we need to break with capitalism and begin a transition to eco-socialism uh i just tries to argue for uh, because people use the term eco-socialism to mean quite different things so by eco-socialism i don't mean just a capitalism with a whole lot of climate justice reforms with regular you know regulated capitalism and i also don't mean uh, a situation where you have just state uh, undemocratic state ownership um of of the economy uh, along the lines of what uh, used to exist in the former soviet union and uh, similar countries uh, but with a green you know dimension i'm talking here by eco-socialism about you know uh, ultimately a society based on producing for um meeting people's needs and for having a sustainable relationship between humanity and the rest of nature in a way that's fundamentally democratic and is moving towards you know, a genuinely eco-social society would be one that had gone beyond social class divisions beyond having an alienated state. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that would be the, the ultimate, um, the ultimate vision. So kind of a, a small C communism, mm-hmm. um, that was, uh, you know, genuinely, centered on addressing the ecological crisis so um that's ultimately i think what needs to be our our political horizon and guide us as we try to build the mass movements around what's affecting people in the here and now uh, and putting forward climate justice solutions to those problems.
1: So coming out of the book, I was able to recognize um, sort of what to look for to help me feel better um, in these grim times, right? And so like, for instance, at COP15 happening in Montreal right now, these protesters came in and and chanted um, uh, obtrusively when uh, Justin Trudeau was sort of giving the welcoming speech. And that like made me happy, right? So, so I guess I'm wondering for you, what makes you happy? What makes you optimistic in these times? Uh, what does that look like for you?
0: Well, I think the places that I find hope are wherever we do see collective, you know, action and, and resistance, especially at higher levels. So whether that's um, right now, the, the protests happening in China itself, uh, or the, you know, this in Ontario recently, just the, very recently, the education workers in CUPE who successfully, you know, took on the, the conservative government, the forward government there, and uh, forced the repeal of um, really aggressive anti union legislation. Uh, and I mean, I think that struggle had the capacity, potential to go further than it did. But, um, you know, those are just some things recently that uh, give me hope, but some people accuse me of not being very optimistic or being pessimistic. But I think that the real, you know, to simply affirm that we're not doomed, right. To simply refuse the doomer Mm -hmm. um, response to all the problems in the world today. And to say, the door is not closed. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, we can argue about how much light is shining through the crack, Mm -hmm. but uh, that, you know, it's, it's not game over. And that uh, we, the, the only hope will be to throw ourselves into the attempts to make history however they unfold in our lifetimes and um so and that engagement with with other people trying to do that is a way of trying to stay sane mm-hmm. uh in these terrifying times
1: i'd like to hear a little more about your academic background you teach at the university of manitoba uh t- tell us more about uh your, your work there
0: yeah, I've been, I've been at University of Manitoba since 2003, and I teach labor studies and, and sociology. I studied before that at uh, York University, did all my degrees there before I uh, eventually uprooted and <laughs> made a new home and a new life in, in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for me, it's, you know, it's a job that I certainly enjoy doing, um, but I've always felt that it was, uh, it's not a substitute for, for political work which you do outside, you know, of the things that we get paid for to to do this kind of thing. And uh, so I've always tried to maintain uh, activity in, in whether it's my union or uh, some activist work happening in the community as well.
1: And it seems like you're also carrying on that educational aspect of the work you do in this new medium now with the podcast, Victor's Children so tell us more about this show and uh who's victor
0: right so it was um something i conceived back in 2020 so in the the early phase of the pandemic when i was um listening to more podcasts and this kind of thing and feeling that uh, there really wasn't a program that was um coming from or, or addressing issues from a perspective or uh, that would be perspectives that would be similar to at least what I would call a kind of an anti-racist, queer, feminist socialism from below, and um, so I thought, well, maybe this is something I can can offer is to to try to to do this, and so it started at the beginning of 2021. It's almost two years old, and it's named after Victor Serge. Victor Serge was a um, writer and uh, socialist activist in the early 20th century, uh, born 1890, died 1947, originally uh, from from Belgium. But he went through uh, an incredible series of experiences uh, as a participant in French anarchism and syndicalism, uh, then in Russia during the early years of the Russian Revolution, then an opponent of Stalinism, amazingly able to, to get out of the USSR before the Great Purges of the 1930s uh, but he was always also uh, because of his independent perspective um, you know kind of on the outs uh, with the the trotskyist movement which was the main anti stalinist marxist opposition so that he was part of it but but critical and then eventually fled Europe uh, and ended up in mexico where he died and so he he was he had an extraordinary life i mean it's, it's an amazing thing that someone who lived through those experiences actually lived, because he was this sort of only kind of survivor of these of these experiences. Um, You know, so many of them, um, and he chronicled these experiences and in both in fiction and in nonfiction. Uh, a whole number of remarkable novels and an amazing memoir called "Memoirs of a Revolutionary." And so, Victor Serge was really deeply committed to, you know opposition to capitalism, opposition to stalinism, uh, but also above all to an independent thinking ruthlessly honest and critical socialist socialism and so he was someone who was uh, has always been inspiring to me and uh i thought well this could be a show for his 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 great great grandchildren <laughs> um to bring people together who would uh, you know identify with him and perhaps also to make him a little bit better known the, the very first episode of the show talked a little bit about who Victor Serge was. Well, but it um, is, of course, a bit cryptic because mm-hmm. people, most people don't, <laughs> don't know who he was today.
1: Yeah, and it explores so many interesting themes, like the most recent episode on eco-socialism, talking about labor in Canada. You had a great episode, Dialectics Demystified. Uh, you talk about sexual violence, feminism and socialist organizing, moralism on the left, the history of Canada's uh, reproductive justice struggle, just to name a few. So I'm sure it's hard to choose but what are some of the highlights of the show? What are some interviews that you've done that have been uh, especially meaningful so far?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll just mention two. Um, the Dialectics Demystified episode with David McNally, which is the most popular episode so far. Uh, I, I really like that episode because of the way that you know, David has a remarkable ability to discuss complex philosophical questions in a very clear way without simplifying them in a in a in a and down kind of way. And so uh, I wasn't, I didn't expect that to be the most popular episode, but it was interesting. So I think it just s- speaks to people discovering Marxism and wanting to uh, understand these uh, ideas that they haven't had access to before. And um, so that was interesting. Um, and then also there's an episode um, called, it's the enemy of my enemy, my friend with Barnaby Rain, uh, which looks at, the so-called uh, tanky and and campus political phenomena, and that's also That was the second most listened to episodes so far, and uh, it, it struck people at the breach who picked up on it and published a an edited transcript or an edited part of the transcript of that piece. And I think that's important because um, Barnaby puts forward a in in that episode a, a you know critical take on a certain kind of politics that have become more influential, and uh, I think they're. It hadn't been enough engagements with them like that. So that's uh, also a special episode in my mind.
1: Why did you choose to explore podcasting as a medium? And why did you choose to join Harbinger?
0: Podcasting is interesting. It, one reason is like I have really bad musculoskeletal problems that limit my ability to type, to, to work at the computer. And so uh, I wish that my body would allow me to write and write and write and write, but I actually can't. And so uh, this is a way of engaging with ideas other than writing. And also I think there are people who like to engage with ideas uh, in this you know form of of audio that's uh, you know different than than reading so uh there's both personal interest um and I think then a listener hunger for for this uh so that's what led me to to podcasting and harbinger because it's really a unique uh project in trying to bring together some really great uh podcasts based within this part of the world we call the Canadian state and um you know it's an eclectic mixture but some really interesting shows including ones that I you know like to listen to and I think anything we can do to try to uh, overcome the fragmentation of the you know the the left especially the radical left uh in the world of podcasting or any other uh, medium is is really good to bring together um and try to make more than the sum of the parts a whole bunch of projects that people are, are working on separately. I think if it you know if it leads people to discover shows they would never have heard about before and allows the shows that exist to you know in some ways feed off each other, then I think that's that's great. So I take my hat off to Harvard.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I love that aspect of it too. And, and so as we begin to wrap up, what can we expect to hear from Victor's children in 2023?
0: Yes, uh, I haven't had much time to think about this the <laughs> like, but I'm planning an episode on this recent struggle of uh, education workers in Ontario, which uh, was really important and that's one gonna be one episode. Next year is going to be the 30th anniversary of uh, a book that David McNally wrote called Against the Market. And I'm thinking about doing an episode connected to that, about uh, you know, we're told the market is the only way to organize economic life. But, um, and that there's a, a version on the left of that called Market Socialism. So 30 years ago, this really excellent book came out that took on those ideas and argued for democratic planning as an alternative. So I'd like to revisit that on its 30th anniversary and have David back on the show for that he doesn't know that yet, but uh, that's the plan. And then also next year is going to be the 100th anniversary of the near revolution in Germany, that uh, Germany was racked with social upheaval between 1918 and 1923. Uh, Most people don't know about that in this part of the world. And so I'd like to have someone on to talk about the events of that year in Germany, because the The fact that there wasn't a revolution had a big impact on the course of the 20th century. So those are just a few ideas at this point.
1: David Camfield is the author of Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change. You can find more of his writing online at his website at prairiered.ca and subscribe to Victor's Children, available wherever you get your podcasts and at harbingermedianetwork.com. David, thanks a lot for speaking with me today.
0: Thanks, Andre. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.